After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. I love Peter. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. <coughs> Excuse me. It's a beautiful way to end the Gospel of John. A charcoal fish breakfast on the beach with Jesus and his best friends. I'm not much of a fisherman. I'm not very good at fishing. I, I don't even really enjoy it that much. I don't understand it. But those of you that do, that's great. I do, however, enjoy eating fish. I, I enjoy eating fresh fish, especially eating fish in Tennessee is a little, you know, but when we're on vacation in Florida or something, I love to eat fresh fish. One time we were in Spain on the East Coast in a little town called Denia, and our host took us to this little restaurant, and it was right on the Mediterranean Sea on this rocky kind of coast, and we sat outside, and the fish that they brought us was simply grilled over a charcoal fire. They'd been caught that morning, and it was the best fish I've ever had, straight from the, the sea that we were sitting right there watching, this little cafe restaurant there in Denia, Spain. That's, I imagine, the kind of meal that Jesus enjoys here with at least seven of his disciples. John tells us this is the third time that the risen Christ had appeared to his disciples, but this is the first time that he's been back to Galilee up in the northern area after his resurrection. All the, the, the hubbub of, of Passover and the massive pilgrimage that all the, the Jews made into Jerusalem and all the drama that unfolded there with Jesus showing up and being uh, betrayed and arrested and, and crucified and then rising again, that, that incredibly intense time was over. And now the disciples had gone back to Galilee where they were from. The dust had settled 
from all of the events of Passover. The disciples had seen Jesus, of course, in that locked room in Jerusalem, and then later when Thomas was with them again, the, Jesus appeared to them again. And not only had they seen the risen Lord, they'd been commissioned by him. Remember last week, we kind of flew through John 20, but I don't want us to miss this important verse in chapter 20, verse 21, the first time Jesus appears to his disciples. In verse 21, the risen Christ tells them, I'm sure they were panicked and, 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 and flustered. He says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. He commissions them. We talked about this last week. The disciples had a job to do. It wasn't just to sit back and say, hey, Jesus is back, all right. He's, he's kind of telling them, yeah, yeah, settle down. You have a job to do. You're now to take this good message, this, this news of the gospel, the, the resurrection hope out to a world that desperately needs to hear it. God's made a way for people to be saved. He's forged a path for salvation that where he is completely just and completely loving. He's paid the price. I saw Steve's video, man. He's paid the price that we couldn't pay so that we could be made right with him forever. We could be adopted into his holy family forever. <clears throat> so what do the disciples do? <clears throat> Where do they begin? They go home. They go back to Galilee. It's about 80 miles north of Jerusalem. And I can just imagine them walking. We know that Passover was in the springtime. And I can imagine them walking that 80 miles in the warm spring Israel sunshine and, and talking about everything that had just happened in Jerusalem. And, and maybe they were connecting the dots a little bit. Maybe they were saying, oh, remember when, when he was on the cross and, and he said, uh, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was Psalm 22. He was quoting it. He was fulfilling scripture. And then others said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. That was Jesus. He fulfilled everything in there. Even that part at the end, it says that he would be buried with the rich. I always wondered why Isaiah said that. Now we know because Joseph of Arimathea, that guy was loaded and he buried Jesus in his own tomb. They were probably just you know, amazed at how all the Old Testament, all the Hebrew scriptures had pointed to the fact of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. It had all come to uh, fulfillment that something strange happens. They get back to Galilee and they don't really know what to do apparently. <laughs> they don't know where to begin. They don't understand how this new thing called the church is gonna go forth. They've got this new commission from Jesus to be sent into the world just as Jesus was sent into the world. But how? So Peter's the spokesperson for the disciples. I love Peter because he, he's kind of like me. He's probably a seven on the Enneagram if you're into that. He's a, definitely an extrovert. He definitely uh, puts his foot in his mouth a lot. I can relate to that. He likes to leap before he looks. I can relate to all that. And Peter cannot sit still. And so he says, I'm going fishing. I'm, I'm going. And of course, the other disciples follow his lead and they say, yeah, we're coming too. We're going to go with you. And it probably felt very therapeutic for the disciples after all they'd been through to be back out on the water, doing what they love to do, what their families had done for generations. 
These disciples go out at night, which was the usual time to, to fish because they could bring their, their, their fresh catch to the markets in the morning to sell. They, the fish would bite better at night, they believed. And so they're out there at night, and the only problem is that as the night wears on, they catch absolutely nothing. If you've ever fished before, I've only fished a handful of times, really. I know it's sad. Some of y'all are, really? Yeah, maybe five or six times. <clears throat> I get bored easily. And fishing is, is not a, a very exciting uh, uh, thing unless, I don't know, like my, my brother-in-law runs these fishing tournaments in, in East Tennessee. Those are exciting, I guess. But, uh, you know, I don't have the patience to just sit there. And you've all experienced this, I'm sure, at some point, where the fish just aren't biting. And it's just frustrating. The longer it, it wears on, nothing is biting. And if you're like me, you don't just come there to sit. You, you want some action, and these guys are not seeing anything happen. And so about early in the morning, as the light is beginning to break across the sea, they notice this stranger on the shore. He calls out to them, hey, kids, haven't you caught any fish? <laughs> I love Jesus. Haven't you caught any fish? We start to see a glimpse of what God is doing here in this text. You see, it's not, not really about delicious fish that they could sell in the markets in the morning. This passage is about that commissioning that they received back in John chapter 20, verse 21. We see that something deeper is going on here. When the disciples, way back at the, their three years ago, when they were first called by Jesus to follow him, they had already been apprenticed into their father's trade. They had already flunked out of Hebrew school. <laughs> they were their Hebrew school dropouts. Not good enough, not smart enough, not hardworking enough to, to, it, it, to continue their education. So they were doing what their fathers did. They were fishermen. And Jesus, of course, changes everything when he shows up on the shore because he finds these guys, Simon, Peter, Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel. He, he appears to them and he calls them to, to follow him as disciples. Mark chapter 1, verse 17, remember what Jesus said to them. He said, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. They're no longer not good enough. They're no longer Hebrew school dropouts. They have a new vocation now, a new identity. They get to be disciples. That means regimented followers, documented, uh, approved students of the greatest rabbi that ever lived, that ever walked the planet. The rabbi who not only knew scriptures backward and forward, but embodied the scriptures. So it's not always politically correct to talk about evangelism, but I want to talk about evangelism today because he charged them to follow him and become fishers of men. That represents one of these five key purposes of the church that we've been talking about for a couple years now. Evangelism. That, that literally means to gospel. Euangelion means good news. Evangelism is to share the gospel, to become a fisher of human beings. It's not always fashionable because in our society to believe that our way is, is best, to claim that 
that there is a heaven and a hell, to claim that there is eternal realities beyond what we can see, is seen as arrogant a lot of times and, and condemning at worst. That's not what true Christian evangelism should be. It should be loving and always motivated by love, of course. But undoubtedly, we don't think we can argue that evangelism is part of our mission. When Jesus told his followers in Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, he was charging them to evangelize. Clearly, he was commanding them to share the good news of God's rescue plan with the rest of the world. That's absolutely a key component in our mission. And I admit, I struggle with evangelism at times. Uh, about seven or eight years ago, I was part of a, a think tank with uh, Lifeway student ministry. They, they invited me and about five or six other youth pastors from the Nashville area to come and talk about curriculum, and somehow the topic of evangelism came up. And I said, yeah, you know, evangelism's not really my gift. Uh, and one of the other youth pastors uh, said, yeah, it's not a gift, brother, it's a calling. And I just sat there, and he said, make no mistake, we're all called to it. And I had no clever comeback. I had no, yeah, but he was right. He was absolutely right. If you're a Christ follower, this is the mission, to be fishers of human beings now. To play our part in God's redemptive purposes for the world means to go after the lost sheep. It means to care about people enough to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Whether you're an introvert or extrovert, whether you're really brilliant or not, whether you're super educated or not, whatever your socioeconomic, is, socioeconomic status is, we are all part of this same calling. But we, we tend to forget this, the importance of becoming a fisher. Francis Chan, the renowned author and, and pastor and preacher uh, out in California, recently announced that he and his wife are moving to Myanmar as, as career missionaries. And the news release that, that I read said that he had shared about this recent trip that he and his wife had taken to Myanmar, firmly known as Burma. And they, they went from hut to hut sharing the gospel through a translator. And he said, this is it. This is what I need to be doing. On the plane ride home from that trip, he and his wife decided that that was the, the Lord's call in their life to move to Myanmar as missionaries. And he said, I, I describe it like this. I feel like I've been fishing in the same pond my whole life. And now there's like thousands of other fishermen in the same pond. And our lines are getting tangled. And everyone's fighting over stupid things. Can I say stupid in church? That's a bad word in my house. Sorry, kids, don't say that word. <laughs> One guy tries some new lure, and we go, oh, he caught a fish. Let's all try that method. And it just feels like, what are we all doing here? What if I've heard of a lake that's like five-mile hike away, and no one's fishing it? And they're saying, man, the fish are biting. Just throw a hook in there, and they'll go for it. Man, I'll make that five-mile hike if I love fishing. What would keep me at that same pond? I'll tell you what would keep me at the pond is I built a house on the pond. All my friends have houses on that pond. And we don't even fish that much. 
We just go out, we hang out, we talk, we play. I don't want to leave my friends. But if my calling is to go fish, and there's no one fishing over there, then why wouldn't I go? I was convicted as someone who's grown up in this town who still lives in Nashville. Obviously, my calling, I believe, is to see Nashville flourish and thrive in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I'm reminded that my calling and your calling is to fish. You may be thinking to yourself, okay, we've heard this spiel. If you've ever been in a Baptist church, you've probably been told, share the gospel, evangelize. You may say, yeah, 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 here's another preacher telling us to go share the gospel. I've never done that, and I'm not going to start now. That may be honestly where you're at today. And that's okay. That's okay. If that's where you're at honestly today, and you feel like this is not something you can do, you're right. <laughs> you're right. You, you can't do it. And I can't do it in our own strength. That's the whole point of this text today. It's not by our own ability that evangelism happens. Evangelism isn't primarily something we do. He is the Lord of the harvest. We are merely sent out into it. Clearly, Peter and John and these guys knew how to fish. They weren't people like me who, when I went to my wife's lake house as a college student, I found the biggest lure I could find and I just threw it as far as I possibly could across the lake, and I reeled it as fast as I could. I caught no fish. <laughs> Morgan comes along. I'd been out there for a couple hours. She said, you, you don't know what you're doing, clearly. She took some day-old bread, rolled it into a ball, and she found her old Fisher-Price plastic fishing rod, and she sat on the dock, and she dropped the bread in, and within 30 seconds pulled out a fish. And I quit, I quit, and that's probably why I'd it's probably why I don't like fishing now. They knew how to fish. It wasn't a problem with the technique. They knew how to keep the oars quiet. They knew where the fish were likely to be biting. They knew how to cast the nets just so to get the widest path possible. But none of it was working. All their experience, all their human ingenuity was availing nothing. That reminds us of John chapter 15. Trey preached that beautiful text back in September. John 15, 5. I am the vine, Jesus tells us. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We wonder why churches are struggling, churches are dwindling. Morgan and I had a hard time thinking of really healthy, thriving churches around here. Maybe it's because they're not abiding in Christ. Maybe Christ is not abiding in them because they're trying to do it on their own strength. Effective churches, effective evangelism happens only by God's gracious gift, by his gracious provision of strength and endurance, and all for his glory. The disciples here had been fishing all night, apparently, and caught nothing. By all accounts, they failed at their task of fishing. Many of us can relate to that feeling of failure. In failure, there are many lessons to be learned, though. 
I think God allows us to fail often in order to teach us. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on John, tells this story about failure. Many years ago, a young man ran for the legislature of a large state and was badly defeated. So he entered business, failed, spent 17 years of his life paying the debts of a worthless partner. He was in love with a beautiful woman to whom he became engaged, but she died. Re-entering politics, he ran for Congress, but was badly defeated. He then tried to get an appointment to the U.S. Land Office, but failed. He became a candidate for the United States Senate and was badly defeated. Two years later, he again was defeated. It was one failure after another, many setbacks, but he refused to give up and eventually became president of the United States, perhaps our greatest. His name was Abraham Lincoln. Failure is the sine qua non of spiritual progress. It is that without which we cannot make progress. Failure. We, my friends Rob and Stacy are here. They used to work out with me. You know, muscles only build when you break them down, right? There's a failure. We had a, a, a training method that we'd say go till fail, right? Go until you can't go anymore. Put more weight on the bar until you cannot pick it up because that builds strength. That's the same thing with us in our spiritual life. We need failure in order to grow. In our culture of success and of achievement, it's not a real popular message. Go till fail. We don't want to come face to face with the reality of our human limitations. We don't want to see that, that we are absolutely weak and inadequate in and of ourselves. But when the mighty Apostle Paul was feeling weak, remember he had that thorn in his flesh, we don't know what it is, but three times he asked God to remove it, remove it and what did God say to him? Okay, I'll take it away. No. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul realizes something profound. The Lord speaks to him. He said to me, Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Christ abiding in Paul, Paul abiding in Christ can do much and bear much fruit. The reality is that for, for human beings, you know, the, the first beatitude, Matthew 5, 3, is what? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means that we're spiritually bankrupt. We are spiritually impoverished in and of ourselves. We bring nothing to the table spiritually. That's the lesson for us here. The church must rely on Christ's strength. The church must abide in Christ's strength for evangelism, not our own techniques, not our own abilities. Next, we see here in this passage an example of the church's faithfulness. What happens when the church obeys Christ? Because the disciples listened and they faithfully obeyed Christ, because they've been through this before. Remember the same kind of uh, incident happened a year earlier ago with the disciples. They listened to Christ's commandment to cast the net on the right side of the boat, and this time there's a great catch of fish. 
a supernatural haul. It's important here, though, that this time the net doesn't break, unlike that, that time a year ago. When Jesus is the one who provides the, the resources, they never run out. They're never inadequate. Nothing's beyond his power or his grace. I read a commentary that said, trying to serve Christ, trying to live the Christian life in our own strength is like going after Moby Dick with a pickle fork. I'm gonna get him. No, you're not. When we're full with the fullness of Christ, when we abide in him, then the net never tears. If only we're faithful to obey and follow where he leads. And then we see the church's reward. We've learned the lesson of we can't do it on our own strength. We've learned the lesson of what happens when we obey, and now we see what the reward is, fellowship with Christ. The disciples accept Jesus' invitation to enjoy that grilled fish breakfast on the beach, char-grilled toast. He's got, have you ever put toast on the grill? It's amazing. They're hungry. They're tired. And, and more pressing, they're confused about how to live this new Christian life and start this new thing called the church. But Jesus says to them, come and have breakfast. I love breakfast, my favorite meal. Morgan's made two in incredible breakfasts the last two uh, mornings with our in-laws here uh, in town. I love breakfast. I love to meet with Jared Hagler, our chairman of personnel committee at, at uh, Jay Christopher is about once a month and talk about what's going on in the church and pray for each other. I love to meet with a group of young men that uh, were discipling each other at Nashville at 6.30 on Friday mornings. I love breakfast. It's a glimpse here of our ultimate reward. Breakfast with Jesus is a symbol for the communion and fellowship that we experience with Christ. Alexander McLaren said all the details such as the solid shore in contrast with the changeful sea, the increasing morning light in contrast with the toilsome night, the feast prepared have been from of old consecrated to shadow forth the differences between earth and heaven. It would be blindness not to see here a prophecy of the glad hour when Christ shall welcome to their home amidst the brightness of unsetting day, the souls that have served him amid the fluctuations and storms of life and seen him in the darkness and shall satisfy all their desires with the bread of heaven. Praise God. The reality of our, our daily lives may look more like the, the changeful, toilsome sea at night, but here the Lord is calling us to focus on him, to focus on the fact that he is standing on the shore, beckoning us, encouraging us to come and join the feast that he is preparing for us as the light continues to dawn. And he could certainly have provided the banquet himself. I mean, he, he, you see here bread and fish. What did he do when he fed the 5,000? He could easily multiply that, but he encourages the disciples to bring some of their catch. Why? Because what we do matters in this life. When we serve Christ by becoming a fisher of human beings, that work is service that is rendered in eternal terms, in an eternal perspective. 
C.H. Studd said, only one life to live will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Jeff Hammer was telling me that architects can be arrogant because they see the work that they're, you know, their hands that they've done. You know, those buildings will fade away. No one will remember them. But souls that are changed by the gospel will last for billions of years. Next year, 2020, is going to be a pivotal year in the life of our church. We're going to have to figure some things out about who Woodmont is and who God is calling us to be and to do. We're going to add an incredible man of God to our staff, Aaron Duncan, who I've, I've come to love as a brother already. We prayed, by the way, last Wednesday night that his house would sell quickly and for a good price. Guess what? It sold Wednesday night, the very night we prayed. <laughs> they accepted the offer Thursday morning. They're under contract. And then we prayed that they would find a house here. They found one that, that came down $60,000 in price, and they put an offer on it, and they're under contract on it. It's amazing how the Lord is working through prayer and through our, our church's ministry and through the faithfulness of the search committee and the personnel committee and the deacons. I can't wait to work with Aaron and, and see how, and you know, our children's choir is going to grow. He's got four little kids. <laughs> I really want us in 2020 to focus outwardly for the entire year, to take seriously the call to be fishers of men and women, to do so not from a place of, of arrogance, not from a place of obligation, but from a place of love. Do we love our neighbors? Every day there's 30,000, 40,000 cars that go by our church, and I would probably guess that most of them are lost and searching. Do we really love them? We have all the potential in the world here, in this beautiful building, these wonderful leaders in our church, wonderful staff that we have. Will we obey Christ's call to go outside the walls and become fishers of men and women? And we might fail, and that's okay. Malcolm Muggeridge says, as believers, the most creative, life-giving words we may ever utter are, I caught nothing. Christianity, from Golgotha onwards, has been the sanctification of failure. Let's be honest. Let's be obedient as we move into 2020. Because with honesty and with obedience comes a great catch. When the Apostle John saw the great catch, something clicked, and he realized who it was on the shore, and he said, it is the Lord. May those words guide us as we toil through the changeful seas of our lives. It is the Lord. In the darkness, it is the Lord. In our failures, it is the Lord. In, uh, when our nets are full, it is the Lord. When our nets are empty, it is the Lord. In all of life, it is the Lord cheering us on, calling us to deeper fellowship and intimacy with him, teaching us to believe and depend on his inexhaustible resources. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you stand on the shore and you beckon us to a deeper communion with yourself. God, I pray that we would learn 
to more fully abide in you, to dwell in your spirit more fully so that we can see the great catch that you want to produce at Woodmont Baptist Church through us. God, forgive us for focusing inwardly. God, I, I focus on myself, on my family, on our people that are here in these walls. Give us a passion for evangelism. Give us a passion to see those who are lost and searching come to find true hope and true healing in the only place where it can be found, at the foot of the cross of Christ. God, I pray that you would grow our hearts, help us to love our neighbors more so that we would not be ashamed of the gospel, but that we would rely on it as the power of salvation. God, help us to be bold in our relationships. Help us to be intentional with our uh, daily encounters to, to bring up the gospel, to share gospel conversations every chance we get, to spread the love of Christ in word and in deed, not neglecting either one. God, I pray that you would help our church become renowned for taking care of the poor, for bringing justice, and also for loving people enough to share the gospel, the, the good hope of Jesus Christ with a world that needs to hear it. We pray that you would utilize all the resources that you have given to us, spiritual resources, spiritual strength, in order to see lives changed for billion-year impact. Lord God, we love you. We pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. It starts with obedience. Today, the call is to trust and obey, to follow where God leads. Wherever he leads, will you be trusting enough, willing to go there? We're going to sing wherever he leads I go. This time is a time of response. We invite everyone to respond. I was telling my advisor at Lipscomb last week that we still do an altar call every Sunday. He said, really? I said, yeah, I think it's important that people have a chance to respond to the word, that they have a chance, every one of us, to say, what is it that God is asking me to do when I leave this place here today? Whatever it is that the Lord's calling you to do, don't neglect his call on your heart today. If it's to pray with someone because you have something going on in your life, I'll invite uh, Brad, Trey, Jan, if you'll come up here to, if you wanna pray with one of them, they'll be here to pray with you. If you just wanna come to the altar and kneel, it'll be open as well. Maybe you wanna talk to me about joining the church, about becoming a member of what God's doing here. Maybe you, you hear this call to evangelize next year in 2020 and to be outward focused and you say, I'm in, I wanna be a part of that. I don't, don't know how to do it, I'm gonna fail, but that's okay, I want in. Maybe you've never been baptized and you wanna follow uh, McKenna's example a few weeks ago of, of following Christ and believer's baptism. Maybe uh, it's that you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior for the first time and you know the hound of heaven has been after you and it's time for you to make that, that leap of faith and to surrender all that you are to him. Wherever he leads, will you go? Let's stand and sing these words from our hearts to God's heart.